John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jordana Abraham. And I'm Dr. Naomi Bernstein. And we want to tell you about Calm the F*** Down, a guided meditation series from the Oversharing Podcast. This is something we've been planning for a long time. It's our most requested segment from the podcast. And these meditations are going to be between five and 10 minutes. They're going to be super quick because we don't have a lot of time. You're going to be so surprised how five to 10 minutes of really thoughtful meditations can transform your whole life. In addition to the first four meditations available at launch, we'll be doing two new meditations every single month. Plus, for the fans of Oversharing Podcast out there, you'll also get ad-free versions of every episode of the Oversharing Podcast. So if somebody wants to become a subscriber, how do they join? It's so easy. You just go to subscribe.betches.com and sign up now for only $4.99 a month. Or you can lock in our discounted rate if you sign up for the whole year. That's subscribe.betches.com. Or if you're in the Apple Podcasts app, you can just hit the subscribe button now and sign up in the app. It's as easy as that. It's The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. My guest tonight has spent four decades entertaining us. His radio show is exclusively on Sirius XM, and his new book is called Howard Stern Comes Again. Please welcome the king of all media, Howard Stern. How about another song? Another song? We'll get you on the... Another song? Three acts. We'll do every act. Give me a nice beat, and I'll sing. Yes. I'll sing. And now I'd like to do a song. like a Ferrari. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yes. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for, Howard. No, I'm I gotta sorry leave. you uh, The band is way. like a Ferrari. You got to take it out and drive it. Oh, yeah. You got to rev it up. I see you come out here. You run out. You, you do your thing. I, sometimes I think you're going to have a heart attack. You're way excited. But I can yeah. see the band gets you into it, and you, you get all you can't charged up. How is everybody? It. Okay? Stephen. Welcome to The Late Show, Howard Stern. Thank you. One thing you have not changed since David Letterman was here, it is freezing in here, am I right? <laughs> this is comedy weather. I need a throw blanket or something. It's unbelievable. Why so cold? I Thank know... you, by the way. Thank you for stopping by on your way to the funeral. I know. Well, <laughs> I thought I looked good. Yeah, you do. You do look good. You know what happened to me? Lifelike. Yeah. I would describe you as lifelike. You know what you happened like to me? You sleeping. I did four years on America's Got Talent. I was on it once. Right. And I was like, you know, I should get a new wardrobe. I'm going to be on television, on a network television show. I was all excited. So I went out and bought a bunch of suits. Yeah. 
I got them from John Varvatos. You know John Varvatos? Very, very popular. <laughs> you don't know him? I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I barely know him. Yeah. But he's fantastic. And I bought these suits, and now they sit in my closet. So I left America's Got Talent because it was basically silly. I was a... <laughs> I was judging singers. I don't sing. No. You know, I but mean, what listen, am I doing? you have ears. Oh, I would go out there. I would go, uh, oh, you're terrible. You can't sing this and that and the other thing. And I was like, oh, well, who cares if I ruin their career? I'm interesting. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it was fun for a while, but, you know, you get it. But you write about that. You write about that in the book. In the book. Yes, that Howard book. Howard Stern <laughs> comes again. Steven. You write about being on, uh, what's it called, America's Got... Talent. talent. I America's did got that. Talent. Turns out yes. America didn't have that much talent. Yes. But that uh, you were like being, you were like, it was a way for you to be Santa Claus, to be a nice guy. Yeah, it's a very funny thing what happened to me on America's Got Talent. Here I was fart man. People were scared of me. Children would run from me when I was in the room. Sure, sure. And then I go on this family-friendly show, which I thought would be quite shocking if I went on a show and I was like this uh, teddy bear. You know what I mean? So the weirdest thing happens, I start going to restaurants with my wife the first year America's Got Talent is on, mm -hmm. and, I'm there, and suddenly people are coming up, can my kid sit on your lap? Like I'm Santa Claus. Wow. And I go, what bizarro world are we living in? Do these kids, do these no. parents know what I do for a living? Wow, and, and are they blind? Because you do not look like a... No, I'm... You look like a disturbed uncle. I do. <laughs> I scare children, Steve. Yes, I know. But all of a sudden, I was sort of family-friendly, and I, and I actually kind of got off on it, and it was fun to do for a couple of years, but yeah. that's enough, you know what I mean? I went back to being uh, a monster, and, uh, and I'm fine. All right, anyway, never mind. Let's talk about my book. Let's talk about your yeah. book. Okay. okay. A collection of your favorite interviews, as I said, mine's included, because you wanted to sell a few. Right. I said, uh, I said last night, and I mean this sincerely, you're, you're uh, maybe the best interviewer I've, I've ever been the honor of Thank being you. interviewed by. Thank you. You and Terry Gross. Terry's really good. Yeah. Terry goes. What's the key to a good interview? What, what do you think the key... Well, is I, it agenda or is it improvising with the guests? I think there's three key things, and this is why I, I wrote the book. And the book is quite serious because uh, people had said to me for years, hey, you're, you're a good interviewer. And I, I, and I was proud of that. And for the first time in my, my career, I said, you know, maybe it's time to put out a collection of these interviews. I think they're fun, they're interesting, and you learn something from everybody, as I did from you. But, you know... And it's easy, because it's already been written. Well, yeah, in a way, but I also... I, I didn't want to just print interviews. I also wrote something about my own evolution in life and the conclusions mm -hmm. I came to, because people who knew me on terrestrial radio knew me... Um, in a way, I was kind of a victim of the ratings, and in my mind, you had to keep things moving fast. What do you mean, victim? What a victim? Um, you, you, it is so competitive in the morning that for me to have stepped back and even had a guest like you on and get into a, a discussion that would have gone on for an hour, an hour and a half like we do, right. I don't think it's conducive. My feeling was I needed to constantly pump the ratings, do something different every five minutes, and the idea of having a long-form interview on terrestrial radio was impossible. That is one thing I'll say, is that an hour and a half with you is incredibly enjoyable because your research is extraordinary. You ask me questions that no one... I mean, I've been interviewed by a million people. You ask me questions, almost every one of your questions was different than any other question I've gotten before. Well, in, in all seriousness, the reason... I, I didn't know you uh, personally at all when you came in the first time, mm -hmm. and we got into a rather heavy discussion. And we, and, and we really, uh, you know, we spoke, and I didn't know you in this way. I didn't, you know, we know you as a comedian, but to sit there and have a, a very serious discussion 
And you and I shared a moment in that interview that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, you, you were talking about uh, uh, the death of your father in the family and your siblings, and it was, it was heavy. And I said to you, what was it like to have a sad, depressed mother? And did you find it was a burden to have to cheer your mother up? And you, were, you kind of stopped, and you said, how do you know how to ask this? And uh, I said, because my mother was depressed. She was very sad. She lost her mother when she was nine. She had really grown up in difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I felt as a kid growing up, there was no greater joy in my life than to sit with my mother, and it gives me chills to think about it, and entertain her. And the way I would entertain her is, I would do impressions of all the mothers and fathers in my neighborhood for her, <laughs> and all these conversations that I heard in her house. Uh -huh. Yeah, sure. And, and, but I also realized when I went into therapy that this was a tremendous burden. I only wanted to make my mother laugh. And so- and that's sort of like why you were doing your show? I, I think that's, no, I think the reason I got into radio is my father was not a very emotional guy, or uh, we didn't share a lot of personal moments together. But my father was a radio engineer and later became a recording engineer. And when he worked in that business, he was the guy who would set up the microphones and record some of the greatest voice people, Raymond Burr. Um, he would do commercials. He would do Tennessee tuxedo cartoons with uh, Larry Storch, mm -hmm. who was a great comedian, course, yeah. Don Adams. And the way my father would look at the radio announcers and the way he would look at these performers, I said, oh, that's how you get my father's attention. When my father would listen to the radio, he'd listen to this guy, uh, Bob Grant, who was on in New York. My father would, shh, be quiet, Bob Grant is talking. And I became, I think I became transfixed that this would be the way I could really communicate with my father by getting on the radio. And none of this was conscious. You but know? Did, it, did, it, did, it, did it work? Was that, did you actually oh my able God, to yeah. communicate with your father that way? Well, in, are, in but, a, first of all, are your parents still with us? My parents are. My, my father's Holy 96 cow. and my mother's 91. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean... Congratulations on your genes and also to be at this stage of your life, both, you know, both physically, your career, and sort of psychologically, that you can ex express that to them now. Well, I You said, can have that sort of closure with them. I said to my mother the other night, I said, you know, uh, I kind of feel like Prince Charles. When am I going to get the throne? You've been alive so long, you know? We kid around like that. Sure, sure, sure. And she said, listen, I've got to stick around to keep an eye on you <laughs> and what you're doing. And, uh, you know, she, she, I get a real kick out of her. Yeah, they're still around. And, you know, I, I talk about that in the book. It's almost like I had magical thinking, even when it came to my health. I would sit there and think, my parents have this glorious old age, therefore I'm entitled to live forever, too, because shouldn't I genetically have their genes, and I will live to 96 and 91. And you and had a scare. I wrote in the book, I got walloped. They came to me and said, 95% chance you have kidney cancer. And I freaked out. This can't be. This doesn't happen to me. Number one, I'm famous. Yeah. Number two, I'm successful. Now, this is news to some people because unlike most of your life, you didn't talk about this on air. Why is this the one thing? Because you've been very open about your life. Well, because, by the way, it's so cold in here, my nose is running. So <laughs> I'm going to pick my nose for just a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, what, the reason I kept that off the air, and, and maybe you would understand this, so the doctor tells me, you probably have kidney cancer, you have to go in for an operation. And I, as a radio performer, and I'm very close with my audience, I take phone calls, we have this direct communication. And I became really nervous that if I got on the air and revealed this, 
Mm -hmm. People would start calling me up mm -hmm. and going, listen, I had a uh, brother who went through this. Unfortunately, he died. And, you know, they told him, don't worry, it's not going to be a big deal. And people fill your heads with all kinds of misinformation. And I'm a neurotic. And I believe whatever anyone says. I thought you were going to say, I didn't want the audience to worry about me. But no. No. Who cares about you that? You didn't want to worry about I, you. I didn't oh, want, because I'm too paranoid. The other thing comes from a performance standpoint. If you tell the audience you're going through something, I was afraid they'd say, oh, he had a crummy show today. It's because he's sick, he's worried, this and that. So I didn't, wanna, I didn't even want that to interfere in the whole performance. And if I you had a crummy show, you wanted them to just think, that's Howard. That I'm just crummy. That's Howard, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but you know, you know, people say, yeah, you know, I noticed since he's sick, he's not doing the same thing. He right, doesn't right, have right. the energy. Right, right. So you know, I didn't want to go through that. And thirdly, I don't even think I had the, I couldn't face the fact that I might have cancer. Now, it turned out, thank God, it was, a, it was a cyst and nothing to do with cancer. But I went through the whole surgery and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I never mentioned on the air that I went through this surgery, and I missed a day of work. And it turned into kind of a big thing, because I never miss work. But, um, you know, look. But then you still had the psychological uh, sort of um, shift of facing your own mortality, I assume? Yeah, it was terrible. I, uh, I just, I just. It sounds weird to say, but I just didn't picture myself having a health issue ever. And I was not, I'm not prepared for that kind of thing, I realized. And you know, getting, circling back to what you said, what makes a good interviewer and why, why did I write this book? You know, there's a certain thing that happened for me. I went into psychotherapy, which I used to kind of laugh at and think, oh, I have it all together. I know what's going on. And I equated my success with that I'm fine. Everything's good. But I had gone through a divorce. I have three young daughters at the time. And I, I pushed myself into psychotherapy. And I got to tell you, I am a poster boy now, especially you, sir. You need it. I, <laughs> I am the poster boy for psychotherapy. Uh, I, I think it's terrific. And I got in touch with a lot of things about myself I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, you know, it was quite a journey. But what happened for me was that when I sat in this psychiatrist's office for the first time in my life, here was another adult, a man, listening to me and actually treating me seriously. The first time I went in to see this guy, I just, from what I saw on TV, you go in and you talk about your parents. So I start doing elaborate routines for the psychiatrist. Like you're entertaining him. Like I'm, into, like I'm doing a radio show. Sure. I said, oh, my mother, she's like, Listen, you are doing too much. We only tell you to do one thing a day. That's right, your mother and I do one thing a day. And let me tell you, you do, I see you running around and you're on TV and radio. Uh -huh. What is you doing it for? It's too much and what's it all mean? And you're gonna get yourself sick. And what's with all this running around? So I'm telling the psychiatrist and he's sitting there like I'm bombing in the room and he's not laughing. And I go, you know, I get paid to do this stuff. Sure. Well, he said to me for the first time, I don't find any of this funny. I, th I go, great. I, I, but he said, in fact, I see that it's rather sad. And I, I was like, really? What do, what do you mean? I, mm -hmm. I didn't think of myself that way. Mm -hmm. And then we got into some real discussion. And I craved it. I never had that kind of attention. I never had that kind of focus. 
Are you ever tempted? Do you ever find yourself sort of as a as a performer slipping into performance mode when you're in therapy? All the you time. You have to check yourself. Like, oh no, this is not. I'm not here to perform for this person. I'm here to be selfish for myself. He's very astute, the psychiatrist. He'll say to me, "I don't sense you're in the room right now." I get a lot of that because I do slip into a performance. Sure. So you know, I think I feel bad for him. I think I'm a very difficult person to have in psychoanalysis right, right. because I mean, I do slip in and out, and I'm testing the therapist all the time. What do you mean? I'll sit there and I'll, I will purposely slip into a story or something to see if he catches it. And he does every time. He knows. <laughs> and, uh, and you're monologuing. I'm monologuing. Like a supervillain. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so what happened for me is I said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting? Now I'm on satellite radio. I can do whatever I want. People are expecting me now to be more sexual than I've ever been. To sit there and I don't know what I make like maybe hang people upside down from the rafters naked or yes. whatever it was. You 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 actually had some some fairly extreme stuff when you first went over. Very extreme, but yeah. to me that was outrageous for terrestrial radio. Religious groups were against me. The FCC, want, the Federal Communications Commission, wanted to keep fining our radio stations, and that was punk rock. That was revolutionary. Sure, sure. That was insane. Right. You need the, you, you need the friction. Yeah, but if you get to satellite. What is it you want to do with this medium? And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I could get some really accomplished people, fabulous people, to come in and sit down and have a real conversation with me? I've been very honest over the, year, the years with my audience. Um, you know, everything from penis size to uh, sexual habits to gas, you know, I mean, whatever it is I talk about. And the big wouldn't three. It be, the big three, you, you know, you, you do the same thing. You're having, who Big you having, two, small one, I'm who sorry. You having, uh, who are you having on tomorrow night? Kamala Harris. Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris. You gotta hit the fart stuff, you gotta hit the, you know. I'm not gonna ask her how big her penis is, Howard. She's got a big penis. I'm not gonna do it. I certainly think she has a bigger one than me. But, you know, I, I have to tell you that uh, sitting there uh -huh. with guests yeah. and actually having some real conversation has been the most rewarding part of my career. And, and getting accolades for it and having this book, this is why I'm out promoting it so much. What about, what about your history of making people feel awkward? Of like, because you, you, you have this, like, Howard Stern will ask anybody anything Howard Stern wants. That's do you right. still do that with the guest, or do you, where do you balance between having some sort of sympathy or empathy for the guest? How far do you push people a into an awkward position? Because I, you, I was a little hesitant when I'm on your show. I'm like, where is he going to push me here? So I was like, well, I'll go with whatever he has. But you didn't, actually. You dug, right. but it was all things that ultimately I, I enjoyed talking about with you. Yeah, you know, my attitude when I, when I first got on the radio, and because I said I was so worried about the ratings, I was number one in all these markets. Mm -hmm. I had 20-something million people listening every morning. Right. And I didn't think there was time, again, for any real conversation. So when a guest would walk in, I write about this in the book, like uh, I say one of my big regrets, people like Gilda Radner or, or Robin Williams in particular. I sat there and I was like, um, hey, Robin Williams, I heard you married your nanny. You know? And the guy was like in shock. Like, what do you mean? Hey, I don't think of my wife as the nanny. And he was very insulted. Mm -hmm. Gilda Radner went running out of my studio, literally went running out of what my studio. What I forget exactly what I said, but she didn't trust me. I was being too outrageous, too in her face. And it was scary to this, you know, this accomplished uh, actress and comedian. 
I came on like a, a bull in a china shop, and it was wrong to do because it didn't lead to anything real. It didn't lead to good conversation. And, and I say in the book, one of my biggest regrets is that I'm a huge fan of Robin Williams. And I wasn't being generous to him. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't being a fan. I, I, I love David Letterman, and yet I would make fun of David Letterman and his ratings and this and that and the other thing. Uh -huh. It's because I just was not open to allowing anyone else to have ratings. But did you ever apologize to these people? Once I you came to this realization, because that's a tough thing to do. I called uh, several people and apologized. And, as I, and, and Rosie did O'Donnell. Did they take it? Did they take it? Some did, some didn't. Uh, there was a, a famous comedian I called. He said, you know what, Howard, you hurt me too much. I, I'm glad you called me, great, but uh, you know, I want nothing to do with you. And I said, I absolutely understand, but I just wanted to let you know I feel badly about the way things went. And uh, he said, okay, and, and that was it. Now, other people, like Rosie O'Donnell, who I was really vicious to, and I, and I describe in the book my viciousness had nothing to do with any reality. I was, it was almost like sibling rivalry. Everyone in show business was my enemy, and I was going to have every single person listening to me if you had ratings, you were my enemy. We talked about this when I was on. And yeah. You said, oh, come on, you want a war. You want a war. And I said, I, I don't. And she goes, come on, I always wanted it. And I said, did that make you happy? And you said, no. No, it didn't. And I said, why are you pouring the poison in my ear? Well, by the way, you're right. And, and by the way, Stephen, <laughs> Stephen ultimately. Yeah. I don't know if I believe you, but no, Stephen ultimately proved it to me. You got to hear this one. This is great. They don't actually have to hear this one. I got another question for you. Oh, what? Why not? No, let me Which hear. Is... No, no, they need to hear this. You want to hear this? Yeah! No, 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 wait a second. Let me talk about this. You told me not to say this, but. I specifically said don't tell the story. All right, I will okay. tell the story then. No, go ahead, go, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm not going to no, tell No, go ahead. It. They're going to be mad at me now. They're going to be mad at me now. I'm not going to tell it. Okay, good. Yeah. You're the bad guy, not me. So. I can do another song if you want. What? I can do another song if you want. Now, uh, uh, trashing Rosie was something you had in common with Donald Trump. Yeah, well. Okay. How many times did you have Donald Trump on? I, I, too many to count. Donald Trump appears 11 times in my book, and it's a fascinating little ride through the book because I would have Donald Trump on, and I say it in the book, he was maybe one of the best top five guests of all time, and why? He was wild. I thought I was wild. He would come on. He would start uh, assigning numbers to women and evaluating them. I'm like, is this guy for real? What is he doing? Like rate, rate, rating them, one through 10. One through 10, I went, yes. yeah. But I'm like, who does yes. that? You know, it was pretty wild. Right. So anyway, I'm, go I'm going home. But in your mind, a great guest. No, a great guest because he would say anything that came into his mind. He was completely unfiltered. He was talking about his daughter was the most attractive woman he ever met and how much he thought she was hot. What's with this crowd? What are you guys on? And give me some of it. But I, uh, yeah, but I mean, it was wild every time. In the book, you'll read about, uh, he gets into an argument with the Daily News gossip columnist, A.J. Benzer. They're fighting over a woman that they both had sex with on the air. I mean, it's crazy stuff. So this guy, easy. So, um, you know. When's the last time you spoke to him? I spoke to, this is such a long saga with Donald. I, I, huh. 
He was calling me all through the campaign. I don't mean on the air, off the air. For advice? Um, I think he wanted to touch base. He wanted my endorsement. And as I describe in the book, I'm a very big Hillary Clinton supporter. I, I liked Hillary Clinton very much. And, um, you know, so Donald said, would you please come to the Republican convention and speak on my behalf? And I went, oh my God. You know, it's a weird thing because here a guy is asking you, you know, who asked me to do something like that? And it's very nice, but I had to find a way to say, look, I can't do this. He knows I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. Yeah. And I Before firmly, he calls you, he knows. Yeah, and I firmly believed that Donald did not want to run for president. I don't think it was serious. I don't think he wanted to be the president. I knew him. He had a great life at Mar-a-Lago. He was running around town. He played golf. He had a good time. And I remember, and, and I say this, the first time he said, I might run for president, he put out his first book. And I know some of the people involved in this, and they said, run for, pretend like you're running for president and you'll sell a lot of books. And he did it and it worked. Second book he put out, it was again, like four years later, he said, I might run for president. And um, again, he said, oh, I'm selling books and it helps sell books. Yeah. So what happened this time? He's on The Apprentice, the ratings were going down, and uh, NBC was balking at giving him a raise. So what did he say? I'll run for president, I'll get a lot of press, and I really believe that Donald, this was a gimmick to get NBC to raise up his salary and to keep The Apprentice on. Well, and I would bet the farm on that. If he, you know, if he with Donald Trump, I have found, yeah. sort of just sort of following uh, the cat, if you'll pardon the expression, for the last few years, is that everything you think is happening is exactly what's happening. Right. He is so shallow, you could not get your ankles wet in him. Well, you know what the funny thing is. The funny thing is that I, 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 for a little while, I said, wait a second. If I do endorse Donald and I go all in, you know, I sell out my complete beliefs and everything else, I could potentially be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> or... Not bad. Or... I'd trade, I'd trade a couple for you, Howard. Right. I would trade a couple for or you. Or the head of the FCC, which plagued me my entire career. That's not bad. Or at the very least, I could see that place they call Camp David, which they hide from the American public. And I believe if we saw it, there'd be a revolt in this country because I think that place must be tricked out. And when you go there, you're treated like a king. And the president of the United States shouldn't be going to a place called Camp David. He should be in the White House working. So that's what I want to see. I want to see Camp David. I want it liberated. Would you want to interview Trump now? And if you did, what would you ask him? First of all, if I interviewed Trump now, I think it would have to be contentious because it becomes a political interview. I enjoyed the old Trump. So I'm waiting for him to get out of office and then I'll interview him. Because, again, politically, you know, with, with, first of all, with abortion, which I think this whole thing's going about because of who, who's sitting on the Supreme Court. We had that argument already. They got to stop. Mm -hmm. we, we have too many unwanted children. I don't know what the heck is going on with all of that, but I'm very concerned with who's going on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and, and et cetera. And, and, and the chaos that's going on internationally, I, I, I am so confused by what's going on that I don't think the interview 
would be something of value because it would just be me kind of erupting. I don't know. But would I interview him? Yes, of course I would. But he has not offered to come on my show since he became, you know, the nominee. I bet he wants to. I think Does he, he always sounded like he was having a good time on your show. Yeah, and I think people generally do have a good time on the show now, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I, there, I think was, it would be a different dynamic. What, I understand that Hillary Clinton was like your white whale. You tried to get her to come on in 2016. You were supporting her. You tried to get her to come on. What was that process like? Was it, was it her or was it her people keeping her from coming on? I had a feeling that, you know, in the same way I described people like Lady Gaga or Sia or... I have some hardcore dudes in my audience, even in the case of Rosie O'Donnell. They're like, oh, I don't like her. Basically, because she's a woman or whatever it is, they don't like her. Never understood or, that. Right, but, 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 or, or Lady Gaga's a top 40 artist, and I don't like her, and I don't like her. And amazingly, with some of these interviews, and, and, I, and I have great pride in this, that after a person leaves, they go, oh, I get her now. I understand her. Because I think their humanity comes out and they go, you know what, I have something in common with this person. Do you think it would have made a difference if she'd come on your show? Hillary? Yes. I do. And that's why how, I... How are your ratings in, 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 in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan? <laughs> okay, I'll give There's you my less theory. Than one, but he won by less than 1%. Okay, I'll those. give you my theory on this. I thought that if I did an interview with Hillary, that she would reach a new audience. Maybe a lot of people... And as we say, when we look at the Electoral College... What are we talking about, 70,000 votes or something like that? Mm -hmm. And so if it's 70,000 votes, and in those states I am popular, particularly Pennsylvania, uh, for example, so we have 33 million subscribers on Sirius. We, we anticipate at least two people in the, each household listening, 66 million people, maybe 60% of that audience is mine. What if Hillary had come on? And forget politics for a second, but what if we could have talked about her humanity, why she got into public service? Here's a woman who's dedicated her whole life to public service. What was her life like as a little girl growing up? What was her romance with Bill Clinton? What was she thinking when she was Secretary of State? What was she thinking when she was the First Lady? Was she saying to herself, I wish I could be president, or was she satisfied with that? There's a million questions I would have had for her that I think would have humanized her. Mm -hmm. And I made, uh, it's kind of a fascinating story. I went out on an all-out campaign to get Hillary to come on the show because I think it could have made a difference. Did they tell you why she wouldn't come on? No. And I knew a lot of big higher-ups who had direct contact with her, but I believe she just got tight. She felt, mm -hmm. hey, I think this is in the bag. Don't I risk don't, it. I don't risk it. And, and I want to say to anybody who now is running uh, as a Democrat, Donald Trump... I saw it on my show. He knows how to communicate with people. And, you know, you can mock him. You can say all the, the goofy stuff you want to say about the guy. But when he would come on my show, he knew how to connect. Not with the whole audience of the, of the country, but of some people. And I think he used my show in a very effective way. And I think whoever is the Democratic nominee should consider going on Fox News for sure, as who, Mayor who Pete of the did. People, who of the 24, yeah. 24 Democrats who were nominated... <laughs> Who, who would you be excited to have on? Oh, gee, I, I don't know. That, that's, Joe Biden. Uh, sure, why not? Because Joe Biden's had a fascinating life. Sure. And I think it would be interesting. Bernie. I mean, <clears throat> Bernie Sanders, for sure. You know, Bernie Sanders is probably my biggest hero for one reason. And this is very self-serving. When the FCC was attacking me and they were attempting to take me off the air, and, and in a big way, it was almost like racketeering. They kept fining our stations. They kept mm -hmm. keeping us from buying other radio stations. Bernie Sanders got up in the Senate and said, I think what you're doing to Howard Stern is wrong. I believe in freedom of speech.
and I want to go on record as saying you got to stop it. And it was pretty damn impressive. And I'll tell you, I was under siege at that point. I really was, and I thought it might be the end of my career. And what year are we talking about here? Oh, geez. I, I don't even remember when he did it. I, I would have 1963. <laughs> no, 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 no. A little later than little, that. Little, little, Probably little in that? the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Now, in the 90s. King of all media, Howard Stern, King of all media. Uh, all you know, books, television, radio, films. Why do you need to be the king of all media? What is driving you? Because there's one thing about, like you say, like perhaps pleasing your mother. Right. But you don't have to be the king of all media to please your mother. You want a very, Why, seri you I, want a very serious answer on that? I, I, you've been giving me a lot of serious answers. Right. I, I really want to know, who, it, what is the voice in your head that makes you want that? I think, now, now I'm going to get heavy here for a minute, but I think as a kid growing up, I was very isolated and very lonely and very starved for attention. And I would do a lot of things to get attention. And, uh, you know, the world of adults and uh, getting them to be interested in me, particularly my mother and father, I think it was a very difficult thing for me. And so, you know, growing up and then finally getting on the radio, I think, and this is, this is it, there was one point we had one out of every four cars on the Long Island Expressway in New York listening to me. And I would go home depressed thinking, why are the other three not listening to me? <laughs> and when I say depressed, I mean it. It wasn't enough for me. It's like I wanted to just have every listener and everybody's focus on me. And I will warn you, as I do in this book, that is a dangerous way to live. A, it can't be accomplished as much as I wanted to do that. But part of psychotherapy was growing up and saying, you know what, I've got to share the audience with you, Stephen Colbert. And, <laughs> and um, Thank you, Howard. Yeah. Thank you for sharing you bet. the audience. Howard Stern comes again. It's available now. It's Howard Stern, everybody. This has been The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. We'll be dropping classic bits and celebrity interviews seven days a week while the show's away on summer break. The Late Show will be back on September 6th with all new episodes. If you're enjoying The Late Show Poncho, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is the next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You don't want to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.